Remember when you first said I do and how in love you were? Then came kids, work, responsibilities, and laundry. Suddenly your marriage became the last thing on your priority list. Are you wanting more out of your marriage? We are Jeff and Mandy Rose, and we want to show you how to design your perfect marriage. Join us on our challenges of adventure, commitment, faith, and yes, intimacy. We want to help you make your marriage more. Wow. All I can say is wow. Yeah, wow. (laughs) So we just got done interviewing with, has been a mentor of mine, not just from the business side of things, but also from the marriage and family life of things. Today, you're going to hear an amazing interview with Michael and Gail Hyatt. Michael Hyatt, he was the former CEO of a publishing company called Thomas Nielsen. He now is a, a best-selling author. He's a blogger. He's got a very successful business that he runs at michaelhyatt.com called Intentional Leadership. And I was able to be a part of a business mastermind group that he put on last year, and I've got to know him even more so, and I've got to meet his wife. And Mandy's been able to eat his, meet his wife, Gail. And the one thing we've just admired about Michael is that not only is he successful in business, which I've said, but he is truly successful at his family and his marriage. And that just became so evident when we got a chance to get closer to them. Yeah, I love that he is so intentional about, you know, because this group that Jeff is a part of is all guys and it's all, it really started as a business thing. And over the course of the year, it really turned into something that included the wives. And it gave me a chance to get to know Gail and to get to know all the other wives that were part of this group. They are two of just the most amazing people that you will probably ever meet. So if you are not following them, you take our word for it when we say they are, they are it. They are the real deal. What you see online is truly, truly how they are. There's huge mentors to Jeff and I. And so we are thankful that we've been introduced to them and thankful to be a part of what they're doing. Yeah, we also want to thank the Marriage More community uh, that provided us some of the questions that they wanted to to hear about Michael and Gail. You know, they've been married for 38 years, $5, which you'll learn more about. And we just want to thank everyone in the Marriage More community that provided some questions that they were interested to know, you know, about their marriage and especially uh, having someone is as successful as Michael is and has been and how they've been able to juggle life. So if you are not a part of the Marriage More community, you can do so. It is free. You can go to marriagemore.com forward slash FB. F is in Frank, B is in boy, marriage.com forward slash FB. That is a Facebook group where other couples are in there just sharing their struggles, their needs, and their prayer requests, and just looking to help grow and make their marriage more. So be sure to check that out. So without further ado, here is our interview with Michael and Gail Hyde. Well, this is exciting for us. Even though I know Mandy's not always excited to do interviews, I, I still think you're excited about this one. I am excited. <laughs> this is an interview I've been wanting to do for a long time just because this couple, they were just a couple that I've admired for quite some time. For those that don't know, Michael Hyatt, he has been a mentor of mine. Just seeing somebody that's successful, not just on the business front, but also on the family front. Him and his wife, Gail, they've been married for over 38 years now. They have five girls and when I think of Michael and Gail, I mean, I don't just think of winning at business. I think of like winning at life. <laughs> and it's just been so exciting to be introduced to you two. And I just know I'm excited. No, Mandy and I are both excited 
just to share your story with the Marriage More community and just kind of introduce you, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. I think that there are so many things I admire about you guys as a couple, and I don't necessarily, I'm not in the world of, you know, financial blogging or entrepreneur blogging, and I know Jeff has a whole nother respect for Michael, but just, I mean, when I was introduced to you guys, I just admire the way that you love each other and you're transparent about your life, and it's just like, you guys are the real deal, you know? It's like, it's so neat to see even with your family and your daughters, just all of it together. Like for Jeff and I as a younger couple, well, I wouldn't say younger. We we don't feel like we're younger, but I guess we are newly married. You guys have a lot more experience than us. And so it's fun to be able to look to somebody like the two of you as mentors in our marriage. Well, thanks. It's been great to get to know you two. We're excited about being on the show today. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously with any marriage, you know, you've been married for 38 years, but it all had to start somewhere. So I think we would love to hear, I think we've heard it, but we'd love to hear it again. And I'm sure our community would love to hear you know, how you guys met and how it all started. Well, I think I actually picked you out first. Okay. So okay. I, I'll let you tell your thing in a minute. But, okay. but for me, it was truly love at first sight. We were in college at Baylor University. We both attended the same church, Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas, And I went to a college function one night where I had sworn off dating in order to focus on my spiritual growth and spiritual development. So I just, I didn't want to be distracted by girls at that point in my life. I knew that would come eventually, but I felt like I had to become the right kind of man, develop my character if I was going to marry a great Christian girl. So when I went to this event, this one Sunday night, this sounds so cheeky, but it's true. I saw her across the room. And I was just immediately, it was a head snap. And I just went, whoa. I, and I just thought to myself, that's the girl I'm going to marry. For her, it took a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. So for me, this was in our senior year. Did yeah. you mention that? We'd been in this church for a while already. And Michael had some leadership roles Early on, I mean, he's he's always had that tendency. And so I was aware of who he was and different responsibilities that he had in the church. And so he was different. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't just your stereotypic Baptist kind of guy. He was he was a smart, sharp, curious. Yeah, right. But (laughs) he he was curious. He was fascinating to talk to. He spoke uh, on occasion, and I was just captivated by his ability to communicate publicly. And then he began to advertise that he was going to teach a Sunday school class. And this class, and this is a big church. I mean, we probably had, what, 300 college students in this church. And so he was going to do a Sunday school class. And most of the Sunday school classes had, you know, 100 people in them and big big auditoriums and so forth. And he limited his Sunday school class to, I can't remember, 12 or 14 people. people. And this Sunday school class was going to involve homework and it was going to involve commitment like you couldn't miss and all these standards. And so I thought, hmm, that sounded really intriguing to me. So I signed up. I was the only girl in the class. And uh, I also had a desire to kind of get to know this guy a little bit better. And so I joined that class and it was everything that he said it was going to be. It was hard and rigorous, 
but I was just loving every minute of it. And so that's kind of how we got to know each other more on a one-on-one basis. And then he started coming over to my house. I lived in a house with uh, four or five other girls. We called it the Wild Kingdom. And it was it was a crazy place to be. And he'd come over with his guitar and play. And of course, we all know that guitars are chick magnets, right? And so we had a window you could go out on the roof and we would go out and sit on the roof and he would play his guitar. And anyway, it was just kind of a fun thing to do for for college students. And we just, the more we spent time talking and the more we got to know each other, the more we wanted to know each other even more, even better. Yeah. Yes, we met one fall. I think it was maybe September or so when she got in my class. We went on our first date in October. We got engaged in February, and we were married the next July. But not before she broke the engagement twice. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I think it's a, I think it's a testimony to my sales ability <laughs> that I re-talked her into it. I had to talk her to, into marrying me three times. That's true. That I mean, true. I thought I would never cross the finish line. Yeah. That's funny. I don't think I knew that about you guys. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What was the hesitancy? You know, what's, uh, well, honestly, well, there's two main reasons. Number one, I'm the only girl in my family. I have four older brothers. So I'm the baby and the only girl. I was really close to my dad. And so the thought of handing my life over to somebody else and and putting my life in somebody else's hands other than my dad was really sobering to me. And I went into it knowing it was forever. So there's no divorce, thankfully, in my family. And so I just assumed this is forever. And I just really wanted to be sure. And so when it came down to, you know, really committing, I was like, I I just can't do it. How can I know for sure? Who knows? So I broke that. And then the other reason is because he was really different from any of the guys that I had ever dated. My history of dating was to date the the football quarterback or the, you know, the jocks and the, the more popular kind of, you know, in high school, we know those guys sometimes don't turn out to be the leaders of their class. But but I was really attracted to that sort of popularity and all that kind of stuff. And he was very serious. He was a philosophy major. He was just really, really different than any of the guys. So it made me question, you know, how can this be when, when I'm not used to that? Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I love, how you, I love how you were saying that you went into the marriage thinking that this is forever. Because I yeah. feel like that's so different from the culture now mm-hmm. that we live in and just society it's like people don't go into marriage these days thinking this is forever so i mean it's kind of admiring that you took that long and that you really wanted to make sure you know knowing this is going to be something that will be forever i think it's also good to make the man work for it you know what i'm saying i mean there's just a sense in which i think for men and i don't mean this in a sexist way but for men to have to work for something, I think, is really good. And I think a lot of women make this mistake when they make it too easy for men. And I think to to keep your standards up and make the man have to come to you. One of my greatest regrets in raising my five daughters was that one of them fell in love with a guy and moved across the country 
to be with him to see if the relationship could work out and it would turn into marriage. And I think they ended up breaking the engagement. And I wished as the dad, I had counseled them or advised them that he needed to really put something on the table and he needed to move to where we were to court her. And I didn't do that. And I think it was a mistake. I definitely feel like I use my sales skills. I use my hustle ability to, uh, I mean, I mean, she didn't break the engagement <laughs> three times, but it took a lot of work to get her to agree to being <laughs> engaged. So I think I definitely earned. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like you and Michael are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> me and Gail are probably a lot alike. It, it took a while. You had to really sell me. But luckily, you know, the both of you, Michael and Jeff, are, are good salesmen. So yeah. <laughs> it worked in your favor. Right. Absolutely. Whenever we first got married, so before um, we got engaged right before I was deployed to Iraq, and at the time we actually we were living together, but we were living in a house with three of my friends. So I mean, it was four guys and my fiance, and then my wife. <laughs> so then, whenever I deployed, I came back and we actually bought a house while I was gone. So we never really had the chance to live together. We never had a chance to deal with like the dirty dishes and who makes the bed and the laundry and all that stuff. So I think there were definitely a lot of surprises that we had in our first year of marriage. That's probably an understatement. But I'm curious, you know, in, in your guys' case, you, you went into this. Obviously, he put his work in to <laughs> getting you to commit to the engagement. But were there any surprises, you know, going into marriage that maybe you kind of had this picture of what marriage was supposed to be and maybe all of a sudden you woke up and were like, man, this is a little bit different than I had imagined. Yeah. You go first? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Where do you start with that one? <laughs> I honestly don't know how you prepare for marriage in this, in the practical sense mm. of the word. I mean, the, the one really, really great thing that we did, and I would highly advise everybody who's contemplating marriage to do this, is to get premarital counseling. Mm-hmm. I think that so often we spend more time planning the wedding than you do planning the marriage. Mm-hmm. And so we had the fabulous honor to work with Gary Smalley. He's now passed away, but he was actually our college pastor at the church. And then he went on with his career to be a marriage guru. I guess you could Mm -hmm. say he's written books, done seminars, phenomenal ministry Mm -hmm. in the area of marriage. And he was our premarital counselor and our friend. And he and his Mm -hmm. wife, Norma, actually did a lot to put us together. They knew both of us individually, and they had a lot to do in making sure that we continued to pursue each other. But that premarital counseling, I think, is invaluable because it does help to calibrate your expectations, you know, going into it. Did we even say something? Yeah, I was just going to say that I agree with you. I think that was hugely important because we don't get much training on that. But I will also say that I think that too many couples fail to get marriage counseling after when they really start encountering some turbulence and really need it. And for us, I think we were so radically different. And you guys heard a little bit about that last week when we were together. But we're so different. Almost on every personality profile, we're the exact opposite. Every single one. And that attracted us to one another. You know, we thought, you know, truly, you complete me. But what began as you complete me ended up being you deplete me. Because those differences, which were so attractive, became so annoying 
And I think that it wasn't until we actually got into post-marital counseling that that began to turn around because we were on a trajectory after the first five years of our marriage. We were totally on a trajectory that wasn't going to be good. I mean, it was probably going to end in divorce because I didn't understand her. I was annoyed with her. She didn't understand me. She was annoyed with me. And I finally told her, I mean, this is like embarrassing to admit, but I finally (laughs) told her, I said, you need to get some therapy. I mean, because I'm thinking to myself, in my arrogant self, I'm thinking to myself, this is her problem. She needs to address it. You know, I'm being the Christ-like one. You know, I'm fulfilling my responsibility. She needs to get the counseling. So she went to this counselor, Dr. Pannebecker, never forget. And so finally one day, after several sessions, she comes home and she says, Dr. Pannebecker would like to see you at my next counseling session. I was like totally indignant. I said, what? What What for? I mean, what do I have to do with this? This is your issue. Once you get fixed, we'll be fixed. I didn't actually say it that callously. but So I reluctantly agreed to go to that first session, my first session. First time I'd ever gone to anything resembling therapy, but thankfully not the last. I've been many, many times since. And so one of the first things he asked me, you know, he, he kind of made some small chatter and he said to me, he said, Michael, he said, why do you think you're so driven? And I just felt like I'd been had like the gig I'd, is up. The gig is up. I'd, I'd been found out and it was really my drivenness, my lack of attention to her, my unwillingness or inability to continue to nurture this thing that had begun and put it all on her and me being totally focused on work. Work was my God. And work was where I focused all my time and all my attention and my best creativity. And immediately when he said that to me, my heart sank and my eyes welled up with tears. And I knew he had nailed it. I think another question he asked us, maybe not in that session, but over the course of some others, what is it like to be married to you? And that that's a powerful question. What's it like to be married to you? Yeah. Yeah, that's scary. I don't want to answer. <laughs> I wouldn't want to answer that. But I love that you brought up counseling because I think this is something that early in our marriage we were we were almost forced into, I would say. I think that we were like most couples so prideful like, "Oh, we don't need counseling." But with Jeff having been in Iraq for 17 months and really it was the first 17 months of our marriage, he came back and it was like we had a new house, we lived in a new town, we had a new dog. I mean, it was like everything had changed. I had a new job and we were really forced into it in a sense because it was like a last resort for us. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful for that because we were like, we now, like, I love that you said counseling because we preach that to everybody we know. We have been back to counseling, I don't know, like four or five times. We have told each other, like, we want to go yearly. We think all healthy marriages should go to counseling. Yes. Um, the things that you can learn in counseling just about each other. It's just, uh, you can't explain it. You, but you know, it's so hard to get couples to, to see that, you know? It's like, I feel like even now I'm, I'm preaching to friends and it, online people, you know, counseling, counseling, but it, it, I don't know how to get them to actually take that step. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think part of it is you have to normalize it and make it seem smart because it really is. You know, I had a counselor tell me one time, another counselor later, many years later, that I was seen individually, who said, you know what, 
It's the healthy people that come for counseling. So many people that are really unhealthy refuse to come to counseling. And so for me in every area of my life, when I get stuck, I like to hire a professional or bring in an outside resource of some kind. And I remember one one time I was having trouble doing strength training on a regular basis. I was really good at cardio, but the strength training was hard. And I was talking, I happened to be a speaker where Henry Cloud, who's a friend that I'd published in the past when I was in the publishing business, I just told him, I said, Henry, I got a problem. I cannot get to strength training. I've had it on my goal list for the last three years and I can't get to it. And he said, so would you say you're stuck? And I said, yeah, I'm stuck. And he said, look, here's the deal. When you're stuck, always, always, always bring in an outside resource. That's the fastest way to get unstuck. It might be a book. It might be a podcast. But he said, why don't you hire, because I know you can afford this, why don't you hire a personal trainer? It was like one of those moments where I wanted to slap myself on the forehead. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, if I'm paying, I'm going to be paying attention. And if I'm going to pay, I'm going to show up and I'm going to meet that trainer because I'm paying him. And I've been working with that trainer now for about two and a half years. Same trainer, three days a week. And and let me just say, helped. the gun show has come <laughs> <for you>. <laughs> <laughs> This is how you stay together. <laughs> you look good for each other. <laughs> but people don't do that in their marriage, unfortunately, and they need to. They need to get an outside resource. And even if you can't afford counseling, and therapy can sometimes be expensive, there's a lot of alternatives. You just got to get creative and do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gail, I'll say I love the fact that you went uh, on your own. I know it wasn't necessarily, I guess, for technically for marriage counseling, but I know like in our group, we've seen a lot of couples that are at that, that point where they are struggling and one has recognized that they need to go to counseling and the other, which I say predominantly is, is usually the husband, you know, just, oh, and I think it's just a male pride thing. Like, oh, I don't need yep. counseling. We're, uh, we'll figure this out. We're okay. But it's just easy is have, having that one spouse take the lead and to go. And I think it's it's just easier to follow when somebody takes that initial step versus just like, oh, well, if you're not going to go, I'm not going to go. Then we usually know how that ends up. Yep. So yeah. you know, good for taking that first step. Well, Michael, I know that, you know, when I look back earlier in my career, when I just started as a financial advisor and I was driven, you know, I wanted to uh, impress my my bosses. I wanted to you know grow my business. And when I reflect back on, you know, where I was in my career, I always told myself I was doing it for my family, but mm -hmm. you know, now in my wiser years, you know, I could definitely see, uh, there was a lot of selfish undertones to that, to where it was about me and me getting to this next level and me hitting these income numbers where Mandy's, you know, what she needed and what the kids probably needed, you know, wasn't the priority. I'm thankful I can, I can see that now, but I definitely know that, uh, you know, my heart was a different place. And obviously I did not have the pressures of working up to becoming the CEO of a big corporation like that you were with Thompson Nielsen. I'm just curious, you know, like going back at that time in your life when you are climbing that corporate ladder, you have daughters, you have, you know, coming into the mix, you know, how you were able to work with that. Because I'm just assuming there's probably a lot of traveling involved, a lot of late night meetings. And yeah. Um, so just love to hear from both of you just how that was at that time in your life and your marriage. Well, let me frame it just a little bit. Yeah, so I was always driven. I went through a business failure in the early 90s, which made me meet even more intent on not failing, so working even harder. So that actually didn't turn out to be a good thing. But in the year 2000, I was at Thomas Nelson, as you mentioned, and we had 14 different publishing divisions, and I was suddenly found myself as the general manager of the least profitable division in the entire company. 
So the good news was I couldn't screw it up. It could only get better. The bad news was it was going to take a lot of hard work to turn it around. And so the CEO asked me at the time, he said, how long do you need to turn this around? I kind of looked like I was thinking to pull the number out of the air. And I said, three years. Long story short, that division went from number 14 to number one in 18 months. But at considerable cost to me personally and to my team, because as you mentioned, Jeff, we were traveling like crazy, trying to make it happen. A lot of late nights, working almost every weekend. And my health began to deteriorate because I wasn't working out and because I was on the road. This doesn't have to be the case, but I was choosing to eat junk food and I just wasn't taking care of myself. I was gaining weight, all that stuff. I ended up in the ER three different times thinking that I was having a heart attack. And the last time I went to a cardiologist, finally went to a cardiologist and he checked me out, did all the testing and he said, your heart's fine. But he said, tell me about your lifestyle. What's happening in your life? And so I began to tell him just what I told you. And he said, look, here's the deal. If you don't take care of yourself, you're going to end up here for real with a heart attack and I may not be able to save you. So he said, you're going to either have a crisis now and start working out and start eating better and taking care of yourself and changing your lifestyle, or you might end up in the ER with a heart attack. And so I took that seriously. And on the, on the advice of John Maxwell, who was another author I was publishing, I ended up hiring a executive coach, Daniel Harkavy, who ended up being my co-author on the book Living Forward, which was my last book. And he introduced me to the concept of life planning. And so I began to see at that point, I mean, it's so blatantly obvious now, that life is more than work. And that if I don't have a plan for my health, if I don't have a plan for my marriage, for my parenting, and all the other areas of my life, I'm probably not going to drift to a destination I would have chosen. And so that was a huge, huge huge wake-up call. didn't mean everything was perfect after that, but at least now I had a map. Yeah, and I think that one of the hardest things about being married and, and getting married is that you really aren't prepared. You know, you have your own family model that you're mm -hmm. kind of working from, and your spouse has their family model that they're working from. And in our case, our families were really, really different. And so that wasn't very helpful. And so you're just trying to figure it out as you go along. And then life comes and smacks you in the face. And the, and in our case, you know, Michael was so intent on providing. I really do think a lot of his motivation was for the family and he struggles with fear a lot. So he does a lot of things that try to protect our situation or his situation. So, you know, he's really future oriented and trying to provide well for the family. And, and also he has other things within him that, that cause him to be driven. But, you know, so that whole journey is off and running. And then you start having children and then you've got debt and then you've got health issues, maybe with kids or this or that. And before long, you're hardly speaking to each other because you're just putting out one fire after another. And and for me at home, I didn't work outside the home after we had kids. He's gone, like you said, he's doing a lot of traveling and a lot of extra hours at work. And so I'm dealing with a lot of these crises by myself. But even when I try to would try to talk to him when he'd come home, he was exhausted, you know, so he just wasn't available. And it was really, really rough. And then we also, there's just other things in our personal life that were issues too. And so 
it was a hard season of life. And I think so many marriages end up like that. And then when you start hitting one crisis after another, you can, and you're depleted both physically and emotionally and spiritually, then you start getting angry and blaming and holding each other to these unrealistic expectations. And then that can just absolutely explode. And then you start looking for a way out. How can I solve this fire, you know, storm that I'm having to live through? And so you begin to look for an escape. And that can present itself in a million different ways. And so often, and I think even more so today, people are just bailing. They're just saying, done, I can't take it anymore. I'm out. And I wish that people could see that it's not anybody's fault, that nobody goes into marriage thinking, oh, I'm going to hang in here for, you know, eight or 10 years and then move on. And, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. No, I think everybody who goes into marriage hopes and believes that they're going to have a great Mm -hmm. life together. And then life hits you. And if you don't have resources available or recognize how many resources that you have available and what your ultimate goal is, you know, what is the why behind the marriage, then it's really tough to survive it. Yeah, I think people always think, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. You know, they get to that point in their marriage and they're like, there's got to be more. There's got to be something else. And And then they get in a situation where eight to 10 years from that, they're like, okay, there's got to be more. I mean, I think they forget to realize that their expectations are unrealistic of marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that Jeff and I have had to come to terms with. (laughs) Uh, I mean, even just recently realizing that, you know, my expectations for him are pretty unrealistic and that life really isn't a fairy tale and that marriage is, is work. And I know something that Michael had said recently and something that he wrote, and I think this speaks true to what, what you're saying, Gail, is that he said at some point after walking down the aisle, after having children, after becoming career-focused, husbands and wives stop learning about one another and the most important relationship they'll ever have. And so I think that's, you know, speaking true to exactly what you're saying. It's like we, we get into this marriage and then we get so focused on other things that we forget, mm-hmm. hey, <laughs> there, we still have to work it, work on our marriage and be intentional about loving each other and and keeping that alive. Well, and also I think that most people get married in their 20s. You know, that's just probably statistically, you know, that's when you get married. And when you think about it, especially now that we have daughters in our 30s, in their 30s, you look back at those 20s and you think those were children. Like they were (laughs) kids. They were just children. And making this decision that was, you know, forever. And one thing that I think we kind of figured out somewhere along the line is that we are growing up together. And who I am at 61 is not who I was at 24 when I got married. I am a totally different person. I've gone through, through a lot of pain. I've gone through some amazing things. I've had children. I've you know, whatever. And so I have grown and learned and I'm different. And I think what we have to remember going into marriage is that, that we're, we are under construction. Each of us is under construction Mm -hmm. and what we see is not the finished product. And we have to give each other grace. We have to uh, stay fascinated with each other. We have to love learning about each other and giving each other the benefit of the doubt and growing up together. And I think if that to me takes so much pressure off 
when you give each other that kind of grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Something that, you, you know, you mentioned the life plan and that that's something that you guys have done and, you know, that Michael has has wrote a lot about. But I know that within that, Jeff and I have been through your course and the thing that the, the daily wins, we sh- we've shared this before on previous podcasts, but the daily wins that you share with each other. That is something that we feel is just this little bitty thing, but has really transformed the way that we communicate to each other. Because we would, you know, it wasn't very uncommon for us to go to bed at night and Jeff would be watching TV and I'm like, I'm so tired with all the kids. And so I'm just going to bed and he wouldn't even go to bed when I went to bed. But it's like now we have this this thing where we know like we're going to go to bed and we have our we're going to share with each other what our three wins are. It's not even about the three wins. It's like you're ending the day on a positive note, and then you're also opening up lines of communication that were not there before. So we find ourselves talking about the three wins, but then talking about so much more that we would not have talked about. And so I'd like to hear a little bit about like how that started with you guys and how that looks in your marriage now. We had this practice for years, and I think Gail was the one that really carried the torch on this, but where... Around the dinner table at night, we would always ask each other and ask the kids, what was the best thing that happened to you today? And we know there were a lot of probably bad things and some things that were just forgettable. But what was the best thing of all the things that happened? What happened? And so the kids would inevitably, they're always almost every night would be somebody who would say nothing, you know, nothing good happened. And so, you know, then our challenge, and Gail was great at this, she would just say, well, okay, I get it. But like, if you had to say one thing, what would it be? So nobody got off the hook. Everybody had to say one thing. And I think to your point, Mandy, it became a way to focus on what was positive. And we had this belief that was developing slowly over time that whatever you focus on, you get more of. Okay. So that like, if you focus on your employees' weaknesses, you're going to get more weakness. If you focus on your mates weaknesses you're going to get more weaknesses that's the thing that's going to get stronger is what you focus on so then and jeff will know this also but then we were introduced to dan sullivan who really introduced us to the concept of the three wins so then we started doing that at night we'd always had this practice and and i really recommend this too we always go to bed at the same time every night always 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 together at the same time every night and we don't have a television in our bedroom yes and that that was intentional too that helps to go to bed together. And we've, and we've always had this practice of praying together. Last thing. I mean, it may be as simple as, you know, Lord have mercy, but sometimes it's more elaborate depending on how tired we are. But we always want to redirect our thoughts toward God who has given us these amazing gifts. And then we start naming, you know, what are your three wins? She asked me, what were my three wins? And it just helps you to kind of do a mental scan of the day. And as you said, Mandy, end with something really positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just, you know, with us having four kids, you had five daughters. I mean, so much happens during your day that, I mean, you forget a lot of what happens, you know? So when you actually are forced to reflect on what has happened and focus on those those daily wins, it just makes you appreciate, you know, the good things in life, you know? So we we forget about all these good things. You know, maybe it could be something as like my son actually picked up his room or uh, didn't throw a fit, you know? I mean, those little things, but yet when you take stock in that and take inventory. Right. It's like, oh, wow, that's that's good. Well, the other thing is the, the alternative is, and this is what we did for years, because especially when you have young children at home and mm-hmm. life is crazy and you barely get them in the bed 
you know, and maybe they, they're up and down 20 times before you can actually, okay, they're really in bed this time. The two of us would just collapse into bed. But we hadn't really had a chance to talk all day because mm-hmm. of all this other stuff going on. And so we would say, oh, you aren't going to believe what happened. And then we would start saying all the hard stuff and all the negative stuff. And then we'd be thinking, well, what should I do about that? And so then your brain is start, you know, kicking in to uh, trying to solve a really big problem or whatever it is. And you just go to bed and you might be depressed. You might be angry. You might, who knows? But that is just not a good way to fall asleep. And so when we discovered the benefit of focusing on things that went well and things we want more of and things that we're grateful for, then it just makes going to sleep a really awesome thing, you know? Yeah, I just want to just give kudos to you, Michael, just for this whole concept because last night we we had dinner and our our routine now is we do the the wins or the best best thing and now my boys well my oldest two actually will fight over who can go first yeah you know, <laughs> they want to be able to share you know what that win is and then something we also added was I share a quote with them you know some sort of inspirational quote mm, and cool. uh, Mandy has a little board that she has that she could put that quote on that board and uh, that. my middle son's always asking I was like oh what's the new quote what's the new quote and it's just fun to see that excitement like they have something to look yeah. forward to. And just for us, I mean, to hear what is exciting in their day. I mean, like, yeah, like you just mentioned, I mean, last night I had to tell my kids to go to bed like seven times, <laughs> you know, and you think they're in bed. No, they go to the bathroom. No, they need a drink. They need a snack. It's like, go to bed. And that's happened so many times that you, by the time we get to the bedroom, it's like, oh, I'm tapping out. I'm done. Exactly. But having that conversation, it's like Mandy said, it's it's been it's been awesome. And you really do have to be intentional because even now, like us knowing that, we still have to be like, like I'll go to bed and be like, I hope he doesn't come in here and want to do the wins, you know, because you're so tired. Right. Right. But it's like yeah. somebody is always like, nope, we're doing it, you know. And so one of you, it, I don't know, it's just funny how that always works out. You know, when he's tired, I'm usually like, okay, what's your first win, you know? And we just kind of pick up for each other. But you do have to be really intentional about it because it, it is hard to do when you're tired, especially with young kids. Yeah. Yeah. Something I would just love to hear a little bit more about because this is something that I totally learned after being, you know, part of uh, the the inner circle group that we were in. But just the whole concept of the one conversation rule w- was that something that you guys did as a family just to try to invoke conversation? I just would love to hear a little bit more about that. It just because I, I feel you've done an amazing job of just being connected to your daughters and your family, and you have now you have an extended family. So just to see how that was first introduced and, you know, what was the inspiration behind that? That was a game changer. And I still think it is. I mean, I think if I could recommend one practice in families that will totally change the emotional tone of your family, it's this. And it's called the one conversation rule. Uh, we were in, introduced to it about nine or ten years ago by Lucy Swindoll, who is some people know her as Chuck Swindoll's sister. But we were friends with her, and we went over to her. She's, she's an author and a speaker. Yeah, and she's in her 80s now. Mm-hmm. So we went over to her home for dinner one night, and it was a dinner party with about 12 of us, say. And so she got up to pray before we ate, and she said, I only have one rule in my home, and I call it the one conversation rule. And she said, we can talk about whatever you want. She said, I've prepared some questions in case you know it gets slow, but and I'll get us started, but we can talk about whatever we want. My only rule is that only one person talks at a time. Everybody else listens, no side conversations. And 
we thought, all right. And that has been transformative because now all of a sudden, instead of all this small chatter that goes on, you know, usually small talk, right? And all these different conversations that for me as an introvert, I find distracting because I don't know whether to listen to the person next to me or the person across the table. And, and yeah. so you can often leave those kinds of dinner conversations frazzled and not really learning anything. But when you ask a deep, meaningful question and everybody gets a chance to respond and everybody gets a chance to ask follow-up questions. I mean, you guys have experienced it for yourself. I mean, it can be deeply connecting. I was going to say that's where connection actually happens mm -hmm. because you are listening and connection can't happen if there's not real listening going on. So we yeah. implemented that with our family and every gathering we have, we get together and we eat dinner. Nobody even has to say it anymore. It's just the one conversation yeah. rule. If somebody now in our family, if somebody was talking when somebody else was talking and we're around the dinner table or around lunch, even it would be rude. You know, it'd be like, Whoa, that's, that's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So when we're with different groups, like we were last week with, uh, the inner circle group that I lead, you know, we just reminded people of that rule and we had different tables where we had six to eight people at each table. And I think it's fantastic. It's funny because another, uh, another guy in the group, uh, he was in a different table. And before we got into the one question, there was a side conversations going. And when he said, like, he almost just said, okay, let's just get started with like, one conversation, you know, like he was looking forward to it. And like, I was in the same way. Like I was looking forward because there were side conversations going on. I didn't know who to listen to. And now it's like when we go to dinner with other, we haven't tried this with our friends yet, but like we're, we're going to. I, I've suggested it, but he's yeah. nervous. I'm like, let's do one conversation. Oh my gosh. It's people don't so, know it. it is amazing to introduce it to people because most people don't think about it. And some of the most amazing experiences have happened when we've had guests that come over or we're out to dinner with some new people and we just suggested, hey, do you guys, are you okay if we do this? And at the end of the evening, they're like, I loved that so we never, much. We've never had anybody complain never. or take offense, but part of it, it's the way you share it. Yeah. You know, say, hey, there's something we try or that we do at home and I wonder if we could try it here. And, you know, everybody's up for, oh, okay, yeah. it's an yeah. experiment. Yeah. I think for me is that when we go to a, a dinner and there's 10 people there in the side conversations, and once you leave, it feels like you were at dinner with 10 people, but you didn't talk to, you know, exactly. 75% exactly. of them. Exactly. That's it. So right. every time we've done this, you just feel so much more connection was the word, you know, that you feel more connected to the husbands, the spouses, and you just know a little bit more about that person more than you ever did. Well, here's one, here's one more thought about it too, is that I don't know why it'd be interesting to try to pick apart why this happens, but the conversations tend to go deeper and more substantial than the side conversations. You know, because if you're dealing with some trivial thing that's going on in your life or something you heard on the news or saw on Facebook or wherever, then it's just surface You're not stuff. emotionally engaged. And if you try mm -hmm. to present that topic to a bigger group, it feels shallow. Like, who wants to be bothered by that, that trivial stuff? So you kind of, even unconsciously, have to go to a more substantial topic to talk about. And I think that's when the connection happens, because you really get to learn stuff about each other. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because I've only known the both of you and the inner circle guys that Michael leads and that Jeff is a part of 
for, I guess, less than a year, really, right? Yeah. yeah, less than a year. But I feel like, like I left last week, we did a marriage retreat for those of you who are listening last week with Michael in the inner circle. And I left thinking, like I even said this out loud, that like some of these people know more about me and I was vulnerable to them more than I have been with people that I've known my whole life. Wow. Um, yeah. And I think that's the way that you cultivate, you know, the atmosphere. And so it, it really has been life changing for us to learn. Mm. I think we're excited to introduce it to our friends once we get the, the courage, <laughs> which maybe we will this week. Yeah, Try we, it. We, we do, will it. do it. <laughs> Something that I definitely want to touch on before we finish up is, you know, Jeff and I have, I think we would say that God is the reason that our marriage was changed and that we are the way that we are now. And that's hard to tell people who maybe aren't Christians. But I know that the two of you are, and so I just want to ask you guys, you know, what do you think that it means to have a God-centered marriage, and what has that looked like for you guys? Do you feel like that is something that has really been important to your marriage? Yeah, so I guess one of the, the things that I try to tell people when they ask me, what is it about your marriage that makes it successful? So a couple things come to my mind. Number one is the word partner. You know, you come together as two individuals and you're forming a partnership. So you don't continue to live these two independent lives and expect to to grow together in love and, you know, long-term marriage. And the implication behind that, unlike a business partnership maybe, is that there's friendship behind that. And I think the number one key to longevity in a marriage is to remain friends because friends Mm -hmm. are kind to each other. They seek to understand each other. They do fun things together. They share life together. They share pain together, you know, and so this partnership and this friendship is important. So how do you do that? You've got me and you've got him and, and we're two really, really different people. We come from really, really different backgrounds and how can we be together as a partnership and as a friendship. And I believe that in our case, our relationship with God is what draws us together. So one time somebody illustrated it like a triangle. And so the closer that each of you grow in your relationship toward God and get closer to God, the closer you get to each other. And so that's why if you don't, in my view, if you don't have this personal connection and relationship with God and building through that and learning what love really is and what, what sacrificial love looks like and all the things that we, that God has given us as a blueprint. If you don't have that, then you have to resort to your own idea of what the ideal is. And so you're just kind of, you know, occasionally you might come together, but you're just, you know, going like this and eventually the potential to grow further and further apart is there. And so that's why we have made it such a high priority to develop our relationship with God in the context of our marriage, because it's what really cements us together. You know, this is another thing that is kind of not quite so fashionable today, but we go to church every single week. That's a non-negotiable for us. Mm -hmm. And being a part of the faith community has saved us from ourselves and from each other, because You know, we've talked, Jeff, in our inner circle, one of the best ways that you can change your behavior is get into the right peer group. 
And one of the best ways that you can cultivate faith and grow in your relationship with God is get into the right church. And so I know there are, it's very fashionable today for people to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church or I don't like all those hypocrites. Or I don't like the program or whatever. And I just say, no, go ahead and come on because, we, you know, we could use another hypocrite. It's all good. But, uh, you know, church isn't perfect. We get frustrated with it and all that. But we find that 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 is a really important component for us of staying healthy as a couple, because, again, it's like the outside resources. It's like having a peer group and a supporting community that continues to remind us of what we value There's something and what's important. Us. And it's something bigger than us that we're And in our tradition, uh, the church is seen like a hospital, not a courtroom. You know, and that's to me, that's been really comforting, you know, to know that we don't have to be perfect when we come in together there, but we come in our woundedness and our whatever, and we come to get healing and comfort. Yeah, that's an awesome perspective. I never really thought of it like that, but yeah, that's a great analogy. Okay, we're going to close here with a, a lightning round, which we've actually never done before. This is the first time. But there was a question that came up. I don't like the name of that word, lightning round. <laughs> I know. Round. <laughs> that sounds kind of scary. <laughs> but so, somebody actually posted this question, and I didn't. I wasn't sure if I was going to ask it, but I... We were talking about the one conversation rule, and I think, you know, having being intentional, spending time with with your daughters and your family. The question is, if if somebody was to ask your daughters what their view of what your marriage is, how do you think they would respond? And do you think they would respond differently now than they did, say, ten years ago, when they were growing up? But just curious, do you think on their perspective of how your marriage is? And so just to make sure I understand the rules. This is lightning round, so you want short. This this one this one is before the lightning round. Okay, good. Yeah, oh, uh, one final question for lightning. Okay, round. okay. I was like, that's going to be hard to answer I know, quickly. <laughs> what would you say? I think uh, the number one word. Well, I've got two, but the first word that came to my mind was commitment. You know, kind of it starts with that commitment that whatever we find ourselves going through, we're committed to figuring it out, working it through, getting help, whatever. And then the second word is friendship. And I think they see that we love each other. We're just, we're just friends. We just enjoy being together. Yeah, I would say two other things. I think that the thing that they would see would be respect. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't speak ill of her in front of the kids or anyone. She does the same thing with me. You know, we honor one another with our words, which we think is so important. And then I think affection. We still like kiss and hold hands in public and, you know, just hug each other. All right. We have a really huggy family. I mean, the first thing we do when we get up in the morning, you know, we stumble out into the kitchen, get a cup of coffee or whatever, but we always give each other a big hug, you know, as we're waiting for the coffee. So yeah, I think those, that would be how the kids would see it. I, I think also just from an outside perspective, you know, from people like me who sees it, it's like, I can tell that both of you make each other a priority. And especially with Michael, just because I've heard him speak more at events and things. And it's always the focus of his talk is always about his wife, his kids, his family. So it's like, it's good to see. Like, I'm like, oh, you know, I could tell he's making his family a priority. And Gail, for you, it's like, I can just, you don't even have to tell me that you're like an encourager and a cheerleader. I can just, it's like you just exude this vibe of that. And so when I was, I found that you had a blog before, which I did not know about. And uh, I was kind of digging into it. I haven't written in years. But yeah, I saw that. But I love something that you said that I read. And I just want to read it because I think it's an encouragement for all wives. And, and you said, early on, I asked myself, what will be my unique contribution to this marriage? 
And then you said, lots of things come to mind, but the most important thing I could choose to cultivate was a heart of appreciation and the practice of encouragement. It's proven to be the best gift I could possibly give to Michael and my family. It's going to make me cry. I'm going to we'll talk about, about that later. But, <laughs> um, but I just think that True. that's really encouraging for other wives to hear because when you talked about being friends, I think that we, we talk about this a lot, that we tend to treat our spouses as if they're the enemy. And it's like some of the things that I will say to Jeff are things I would never say to a friend. It's yeah. like I, I don't know why I feel this ability to be able to say those things to him when it's like, hey, you know what? Why don't I treat this like a friendship? You're my friend. I would never go to my best friend and talk to them that way. And so right. I think a lot of couples fall into that. And so I just love that. I love that you're such an encourager and I strive to be more like you, Gil. <laughs> I'm all emotional now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. That was awesome. Thank you for that. So, okay. Lightning round, which you've actually kind of addressed some of these, so these might be pretty quick. So I just have, I think, just four last questions, and we'll go through these really quick. So the first one is, what one word would you use to describe your marriage? I'd say friendship. I'd say growth. Okay, what are the non-negotiables in the marriage? You go first on that one. (laughs) Okay, give you a chance to think, right? Yeah. A couple of them. One I already mentioned, going to bed at the same time each night. Another one for me is quitting work by 6 o'clock, no later than 6, so that we have the evenings together. And then I would say a third one is that, and this might be controversial, I don't know, I am never alone with another woman, and Gail's never alone with another man. And it's not because we feel that the opposite sex is dangerous. We just think that proximity is often sort of the foundation for bad things to happen. And we just think just to avoid the appearance of evil. You know, I never want to hear ever question what I was doing. And I never want to put myself in a situation or put somebody else in a situation where we could sin and destroy something we've worked for 38 years to build. And my marriage is too precious for that. So those are my next. Thank you for sharing that. That's I was going to say thank you for saying that because I think it's important for people to hear. And it's not the most popular thing to say, especially when you tell friends that, you know, it, it seems like, oh, we're controlling. But. I love that you said that. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. So a non-negotiable for me is probably, gosh, I, it, I want to say it, but it's, but sadly I haven't been, I, I don't keep it perfectly, but it's not to get so self-centered and pouty when I, when things are not going my way, but to keep communicating. And one of the things that we always do, I think, is if we're in conflict and we go to bed and, you know, we're in that point where we don't even want our toes to touch each other, that we just kind of hang in there with it. And we may turn our backs to each other and, you know, I may be crying on my pillow and he's fuming on his pillow or whatever. But or the that, reverse. Or the reverse. But, <laughs> but, we'll, but we really, truly won't fall asleep until we, you know, resolve it, to, at least enough to say, you know what? I just want you to know I love you and we can, we can talk about this that's more tomorrow. Non-negotiable. But that's a non-negotiable. We don't hold grudges. We don't harbor things. In full transparency, that's one thing that we are, we are working towards right now is to adopt that. And actually when we left that marriage retreat, that was something that we were just intentionally going to work on. So yeah. it's good to hear that. Yeah. Okay. I said four, but I'm going to actually just make it one last one. What's the number one thing that you would tell your younger self on how to make your marriage more. 
I would say be fascinated with your spouse. Never lose that. Fascination is a choice and you can decide to be fascinated and be curious and be an explorer and find new things to learn and love about your spouse. And I would say choose growth. Choose to constantly grow as an individual and grow as a partnership. And don't freeze frame anybody. Don't freeze frame your spouse, but to recognize we're all in process and you're going to hit some rocky roads in the years to come and just stay the course and get lots of help and lots of resources. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling kind of tingly inside. Like, <laughs> I feel like we just had a, a little therapy session of our own. Like, <laughs> but that's well, how I always feel after, you know, leaving anything with you guys is just, we really admire the way that you share your marriage and the way that you're encouraging not just us, but so many people when it comes to marriage. And so thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for standing up for marriage and for speaking out about what are the things that we can do to be faithful to each other and to stay the course. Yeah. Thank you guys. And and we are so proud I was gonna of, say the same thing. of you guys because <laughs> I mean just the fact that you are giving a a platform for this topic and giving mm-hmm. uh, hope to couples. People want to have a happy marriage. You know, you want that partnership and it's just so tough. And help. you guys are offering something that really, really matters. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a lot at stake. Yeah. Love you guys. Yeah. yeah. Love we you love guys you guys too. too. All right. Well, thank right. you so much. It's been truly an honor. I mean, I know we've heard some of these stories before, but my goodness, just hearing it again, it's just, we're just thankful and grateful. So thank you. Thanks thank for you. having us.